It's another edition of Making Money. Glad you could join us. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, retired portfolio manager, I'm Gordon Whitehead, along for the ride. We mentioned we're going to talk about China, kind of like the 500-pound gorilla the last couple of decades, Ron. So much of what China has done with their economy has shaped the world economy. And I think people are still, are, am I late to the party? Should I be investing in there? Let's, let's open that, that can up and see what you think. Well, China has advantages and disadvantages. So what this show's about is we're going to showcase where the advantages they have. But also, um, China has got, got some major problems. They're just not the invincible competitor everybody thinks they are. And we'll take a look at how well their markets have actually done over the last 10 or 15 years. And I think that's going to be a surprise to people. And based on all the information we'll give you, uh, we'll give you some ways that you can play the Chinese economy uh, that are lower risk and offer uh, pretty solid returns. Well, they're going to be in the spotlight with the Olympics, the Winter Olympics. Everybody's going to be paying attention. So where do we want to start here? Well, let's start by talking about uh, some of China's advantages. And, you know, of course, their advantage is their size. China's economy first passed the U.S. in 2017 using a metric called purchase power parity, and that just tells you how much goods uh, their currency will buy. And they were 16% larger than the U.S. last year by 2025. They're projected to be almost 40% larger uh, than the U.S. economy. So, you know, you've got the, just the sheer size. China can bend trade negotiations and trade rules to suit their fancy because they're the biggest player on the block, just like the United States has been able to do essentially since World War II. Also, you look at education by 2025, uh, the predictions are that China will produce roughly twice as many STEM PhDs as the U.S., and that's science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, technology, China has put orbiters around the moon. China's number one in 5G and in robotics and is ahead in many areas of artificial intelligence and even nuclear fusion. So there's some really, really big areas that China is not only appearing as a competitor, but frankly has lapped Europe and the United States in many critical areas. So uh, China is a serious competitor that, you know, everybody is pulling their head out of the sand and realizing, hey, we better wake up or we're going to be lapped by these guys. Well, as you say, there are some disadvantages, too. And I think at the top of my list is just the way the world looks at China and its government, right? That's got to be a big one. Yeah. So, you know, China's popularity is shrinking. Xi and his Chinese communists have hit a new low in global popularity. Many countries they lent money to under the Belt and Road Initiative, which was a very, very strategic play that allowed China to tie down the resource and materials they needed for decades to come. But many countries feel manipulated by this because you go to countries where uh, China has big trade agreements. You know, maybe they're developing a railroad or maybe they're developing a dam or maybe they're developing a mine. But you look at most of the workers on these projects, they're not hiring locals. We were in Tanzania a number of years ago when we were watching the Chinese build a railroad. Virtually, there was no locals on the, on the job site. 
and uh, most of them were imported from China uh, to run and build that particular project. So many countries that uh, China lent money to, uh, they're finding that the advantages that they were told would happen just haven't happened, and the economic benefits just aren't there. Also, China's internment camp for the Uyghurs, they're dismantling of freedoms in Hong Kong, and their land claim bullying in the South China Sea has cost them a lot of goodwill. And frankly, uh, many countries just are suspicious about the Chinese and don't particularly uh, trust anything that they say or doing. And of course, they steal a lot of technology, they don't honor patents, and so that just makes trading partners look at them with a high level of suspicion. And their economy is slowing down. I mean, the economy used to represent 40% of global growth. Now it's 25%. Uh, the way they've been um, shutting down the economy to stop the spread of COVID has really hurt. Unemployment is now 13%, and that's unheard of. You know, Chinese growth going forward is going to be 4%. You know, during the last 30 years, it was 10%. And China's got a big population problem. And just the fact that they're not having enough kids and the economy and the population is going to struggle with that. By 2050, they should have about 20% fewer Chinese workers than today. And putting that in perspective, when you lose 200 million workers, uh, that's about 60% of the entire U.S. population. I mean, these aren't small numbers we're talking about here. And these work to China's disadvantage. So all of the manufacturing, for instance, that they do, that has been transferred from North America to China, if you start losing labor force, you don't get the manufacturing done, right? So they're kind of no. up against it there in that respect. You know, and their economic disadvantages are also declining. As you say, Gord, you know, you look at their uh, shortening uh, companies and countries want to shorten their supply chain. So, you know, if you can't get goods delivered and you're manufacturing something in the United States and parts are coming from China, well, maybe you want to shorten that supply chain because with more robotics, in many ways, you can be very competitive just producing it at home. So producing it um, a couple miles down the road where, you, uh, where you're assembling it makes a lot more sense than try to uh, source products from halfway around the world. And with all of the the growth that they had, Ron, they, they created a middle class, didn't they? A lot of people came out of poverty in China, which is a good thing. But now they're sort of like everybody else on the map here. You know, China's wages have risen dramatically, like you say. And um, they're now, uh, the last time I looked, the Chinese middle class, which is about 600 million people out of 1.4 billion, means that they're not competitive with many of their neighbors like Vietnam, Indonesia, and in many places, Chinese wages are four times or, or even more higher than their competitors. And when you're trying to produce something that is labor-intensive, if your costs are way out of line, frankly, manufacturers just move elsewhere. We talk a lot about what's happened in Canada with debt and GDP. and all. What's China look like on that? Well, China's total debt to GDP, which is their total debt to gross domestic product, or all the goods, the value of all the goods and services they produce, is over 250%. Now, you don't have to be an economist uh, to understand the implications of this, but 250%, when your, your debt is two and a half times bigger than your annual economy, that's not a good sign. And that their debt is even greater than that of the U.S. And, of course, 
the U.S. is viewed as an economic basket case when it comes to uh, getting their spending under control. But China has its problems, too. And, of course, that's spilled over into the real estate market. And I mean, we all have gone, I'm sure, Gord, you've gone to the websites and you've seen empty cities sitting out in the desert where there's tens of thousands of homes built and there's nobody living in them yet. And, of course, China's done that, goose the real estate market to keep full employment. But now it's coming home to roost because eventually after you built this stuff and you borrow to do so, you've got to pay for it. And China's real estate developers are in full-scale collapse right now. Evergrande, which is their biggest alone, that's just one company, is going bankrupt right now. And their total debt is $300 billion. Holy smokes. What about the banking system there? How does that work? Well, the banking system in China is very chummy with um, the government. Yeah, the (laughs) communist government. And of course, um, if the Chinese government wants uh, a loan swept under the rug and many uh, businesses are still government owned and frankly, they're not run that well, they've got debt that far exceeds their capability of paying it. So China has non-performing loans that everybody knows are much higher than the official numbers and much higher than what the the West has. Typically, when we go through a financial crisis, much of our bad debt gets written off. But in China, you've got all this zombie debt and these zombie corporations there, and nobody knows exactly how big it is. I mean, I've seen lots of speculation, but I don't know anybody who says that their their debt, uh, their bad or non-performing loans are lower than that in the Western world. So that's like an iceberg. You really don't know how much is flying below the water and how risky it is, but that is a big risk for these guys. Okay, so I guess we could summarize a little bit. It's still it's still an economic power, but there are problems there, right? So caution? Caution, absolutely. So when you look at the world scene, you see China is still a growing economic power, but they have significant problems, including the fact that... Uh, you know, people forget they are communists. And in the last few months, the reason we're having this show is just we've seen a huge number of restrictions they placed on technology companies, on media companies, on educational stocks. And they've just come out of nowhere with carte blanche rules uh, that has decimated major sectors of the market. So, yeah, they're a growing economic power, but they've got problems and they've, they're a communist country. They've got restrictions. On the other side, you've got America, which is a global power in decline. And so, you know, with each passing day, you look at how less of an influence America has on the, on the global economy. And it's been declining now for a decade or more. And, and I don't think that that's going to slow down as we keep printing more money. So uh, China's stock market is uh, reflecting the news that, that really they're growing, but very little of that um, economic activity has filtered down to shareholders. Uh, So it gets distributed uh, into the economy, but uh, shareholders have been left at the short end of the stick. And that stock market has gone nowhere. I mean, the Chinese stock market, the Shanghai index, which is their major index, was over 6,000 in 2007. It's about 3,300 today. So their particular market 
literally even over the last decade is up by a couple of percent a year and um, over the span between 2007 and today, which is 15 years, their market is still down about 40%. So um, what I would suggest is that China maybe is numero uno economically, but to invest, don't do it directly in China, but do it in the periphery or countries around China. And the way to do that is to buy an ETF or exchange-traded fund in a democratic economy where China is its biggest export market. Two good examples are South Korea and, uh, and also Taiwan, which uh, their economies are really linked to exporting high-quality finished goods uh, to China. South Korea has an ETF, the iShares Korean Equity, which has grown at almost 8% a year. Its symbol is EWY, trades in New York. And, uh, you know, it's averaged 6.6% per year over the last 22 years it's been in existence. The Taiwan ETF over the last 10 years um, has averaged 13.4% a year. So those are two quality examples or, or areas that you can invest in that give you exposure to China but aren't giving you direct um, risk with all the variables that that make China such an unpredictable place to be. Okay, there you go. A look at China, the, the big dog on the block, but a uh, big dog that's maybe got some issues. All right. Uh, questions, Ron. We've had a couple come our way, and we always encourage people, if you have a question for us, we'd be happy to tackle it uh, to letsmakemoney.ca or through the cfcw.com portal. We got one here from Bjorn. He says, uh, Ron and Gort, I am disabled. I have $90,000 in my RDSP that my mother left for me because my right hand and right foot are crippled. I'm thinking of buying 1,000 ounces of silver and 12 ounces of gold from TD Bank and TD Gold and Silver Certificates. I'm 52 years old, and I'm worried that my RDSP's worth will erode by time I'm 65 and retired on the Canada Pension Plan. What's, what's your thought on that, Ron? Well... If you take a look at gold and silver, uh, we talked about gold in our in our previous show, and you know it's grown over the last decade by 0.3 percent per year. hasn't kept up with inflation. If you bought silver, silver has literally declined by about three and a half percent per year over the last decade. So it certainly hasn't kept up with inflation. So if you're looking at an investment that will keep up with inflation, well, you're going to have to trade these things because literally they've lost ground on an after-tax, after-inflation basis over the last decade. And, you know, if you, if you look at the, the literature, what financial planners and most experts recommend, they're saying, yes, you want to have some precious metals in your portfolio as an insurance policy that will protect you in case uh, we have political or severe uh, inflation or economic events. But most recommend 5 to 10%, not putting all of your money there. And I think those are two good points to think about before uh, you launch into converting your entire portfolio into precious metals. Okay, uh, another question here from, uh, from John. Uh, recently, we came across the newly minted Canadian depository receipts available in Canadian dollars. They seem to allow the purchase to buy these U.S. stocks without being exposed to the exchange surcharge, which can often run 
from you know one to two and a half percent. It appears that CIBC, as their fee, has 0.6 percent cost embedded. This is a subject that uh, we could look at and whether they make sense or not. And the answer is that there's two issues here. The first is the efficiency of buying uh, futures contacts to, contracts to hedge against currency movement. And there will be some protection if you buy a currency hedge or a futures contract. And, you know, in, embedded in these buying these U.S. stocks that you buy in Canadian dollars, and there's some big names like Walmart and Google and Amazon and Apple and some of the bigger names. But this also uh, comes with some risk because there's no perfect hedge. So if a currency goes down, well, they might have got their hedging right. But in, in, I've seen in many cases the hedging isn't perfect. So if the currency goes down, it's, uh, the amount you gain on the hedge doesn't offset what you lose on the currency. So number one, you've got to understand that hedging is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And secondly, they're charging 0.6% per year for this. So if you buy one of these stocks, and generally the names that are out there are not traders. People buy these things and hold them for longer term. So if you hold these for a decade, it's going to cost you 6%. And much of the research I've seen shows that, that, frankly, hedging doesn't make that much difference over time. So You might go underwater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might be underwater with this stuff. So my recommendation would be, to, over time, as we talked about last week in our currency recommendations, is convert some money on a regular basis, maybe quarterly, and just plan to do so over maybe a 10-year period, and then use those proceeds to buy... Uh, good quality U.S. stocks, anytime they get cheap, you'll be dollar cost averaging the currency and you won't have the extra expenses of of having to hedge them. So um, I personally, it's not a strategy that I would do, but, you know, if you have smaller amounts of money um, and you the exchange costs are really hard for you to do, well, this is a way this is a way for you to get some exposure. So I'm not saying don't do it, but if your portfolio is larger and you have the ability to convert like quarterly and you're going to be spending some time down in the U.S. or you want to have some U.S. for diversification, just dollar cost average into the currency and then buy good quality stocks, you'll find that that will work out to be considerably cheaper. Okay, there you go. And if you have a question, essay, let's make money.ca is our website. You can send it to us or through cfcw.com, where the show is hosted. Uh, we'll be back again next week. We're going to talk about inheritances. Oh, boy. If you're somebody that's, I guess, fortunate enough to get one of those, whether it be smaller or larger, we're going to try to help you through what to do with them. On behalf of the financial coach, Ron Hebert, we would invite you to join us next week. I'm Gord Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The information presented is derived from sources believed to be reliable. This material is presented for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Before acting on any investment information, a person should seek advice from an investment professional. The presenters may or may not hold positions in the securities discussed on this show and will not be responsible for any losses sustained from acting on this information.